Our gospel lesson for today, the 15th Sunday after Pentecost, comes from Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. Jesus says, If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you, so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you agree on anything on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. People of God, may the grace and peace of our triune God be yours today and forever. Amen. Anybody else out there a creature of habit? Yeah, I think humans are are creatures of habit in general. I, too, am a creature of habit, especially in the morning. Now, when I first kind of get up and get moving around in the morning, there are three things that I do every single day as a habit. Now, the first one, blame the day job. I read the Bible. I've got a, a, a Bible that's divided up into daily readings, and every single day I, I do that reading. I figure that's probably a good thing to be doing. So that's number one. Number two, I get on my phone, I get on Duolingo, because Spanish is not going to learn itself, people. After several years, I'm mediocre at best. Donde esta? <laughs> I don't know why I said that. Number three, also on my phone, I do the Wordle. Yes. How many people are still doing the Wordle? A few. Okay. Being a creature of habit and also being a little bit of a math nerd, I like the Wordle for a variety of reasons. It's just a kind of a good way to get my brain going. If you don't know what the Wordle is, you're essentially trying to solve a word every single day. So you type in a word, and it tells you what letters are correct, and then you type in another word, and it tells you what letters are correct. And you have six chances to get the Wordle right. Now, I've been doing the Wordle for, I don't know, a couple of years now. It's been going on for a while. And what I really, really like about it, what I really appreciate about it, is that every single day, once you finish, whether you solve it or not, it tells you your stats. Now, I'm, I'm a, a math nerd, so I love the stats. And I was doing really, really well. I had done it over 550 times. I had a 96% success rate. I was really, really good at it. My longest streak was 77 days in a row. 77, and I was on a current streak of 60, so I was coming up on, on beating my record again. Now, Friday morning, I was going through my, my habits. I was doing all my things, I'm sipping on my coffee, did my reading, did my Duolingo, and I did Wordle. And the first thing I noticed when I pulled the Wordle up was it looked different on my phone. I'm like, oh, that's weird, but I didn't think too much of it. I thought, you know, maybe they changed the graphics on their end. It wasn't a big deal. And I went through, and I got it on line six, phew, solved it. And when my stats popped up, they had started over. One. Not only did I lose my streak, my stats were gone. 
And I thought, what is going on here? And so the first thing I did, being curious, was I took a screenshot and I sent it to a couple of my friends who also do the Wordle. I'm like, look what they did. Somebody, and one of them wrote back, mine's still normal. Scratched my head a little bit about that time. Emily came walking by. I said to her, they messed with the Wordle. She's like, mine was fine. What? And so I got to looking at it and thinking about it, and suddenly I had an epiphany. On Thursday, in order to free up some memory on my phone, I cleared the browser history. Now, the browser history is something they call the cache, is what communicates with Wordle on the other end to keep those stats going. Folks, I did it to myself. And my first thought was, there's probably a lesson in there. Well, now my streak is three. Let's put Wordle away. I did it to myself. My pain, my suffering was self-generated. <laughs> Let's talk about this passage. We find ourselves late in the game, ministry-wise, for Jesus. I mean, we're in chapter 18 of Matthew. He's on his way towards Jerusalem. He's really not very far away from it. We've heard in the last couple of weeks, Jesus has begun to tell his disciples what's going to happen in Jerusalem. He's, he's predicting that he will be betrayed and he will be tortured and he will be killed. And they're on their way towards that. You know, a lot of the miraculous healings, that's kind of done. A lot of the teaching is done, but not entirely. And he's continuing to still kind of teach just a little bit. But throughout the entirety of chapter 18, not just this short little portion that we had, but this entire time, Jesus is kind of talking about a lot of different things. And really the basis for what he seems to be talking about is the idea of reconciliation, of, of being reconciled. But what's interesting about this little portion, I don't know if any of you picked up on this or not, but the, my first thought when I read this passage was it almost kind of sounds like Jesus is starting to describe a church that didn't really exist yet. I mean, keep in mind, Jesus is still alive. He has not been killed. He has not, we have not had the death. We have not had the resurrection. So the church really wasn't around yet. So why does this passage say, if a member of the church sins against you? I thought that was weird. And so here's another thing that I nerd out over, and some of you know this, original language. Let's go Greek for a moment, shall we? Because this passage... As much as I appreciate this overall translation, this entire translation, the NRSV translation of the Bible, I use it all the time, they really mess up this passage, at least this verse. It's supposed to be, if your brother sins, period. That's the original language. But for whatever reason, when they were putting this translation together, they made this interpretation. Now, here's the thing about translation, and I've learned this in working with original language. Every single translation, whether we're talking about Greek to English or whether we're talking about Spanish to English, if I'm doing my Duolingo, it's always an interpretation because no language, you can go directly one to the other. There's nuances in language. There's all kinds of different stuff in language. So, But that's just kind of a side note to think about if this person sins, and you recognize it. And now Jesus is giving a step-by-step -step instruction for what to do when this happens. It almost reads like a how-to manual. Did you pick up on that? If this person sins, step number one. Talk to them, just the two of you. Dude, you messed up. 
If they listen to you, spectacular. Your brother has been returned to you. Rejoice! It reads just like that too, doesn't it? Yeah. If not, move on to step two. I don't know why I'm doing this little side thing, but I'm doing it anyway. Step two, take two or three people with you and go talk to them again so that everything that may be said will be heard through the witness of two or three different people. And I think this serves two different purposes. A, you got a couple of people to back you up. Or B, if you're the one screwing up, they can call you on it. Interesting. If they return to you, yes, rejoice. Your brother has been returned to you. If not, move on to step three. Go talk to the entire assembly, or the church is the way it says. Go talk to the assembly. And if they listen to the assembly, wonderful. If not, treat them like a Gentile or tax collector. So it's the step-by-step-by-step thing. But what's at the basis for it? Is it to just be mean and rude and judgmental? Or is it to try and create restoration? I really think that's what it's about. That's what ultimately Jesus seems to be about. Because he wants everyone to be together. He wants the entire community to be present. Now, what's interesting about this, again, the church or the assembly at that moment was either the 12 disciples or that small group of people that surrounded Jesus, which was maybe about 100 people. It was not this giant worldwide thing that it is now. But the assembly, the group of believers, the followers of Christ, whatever we want to say, it continues to be that regardless of how big it is. We are the assembly here today. The entire church around the world is the assembly today. But as we also hear from Jesus, wherever two or three are gathered, that is the assembly. Right before this passage, immediately before this, Jesus actually uses this little bitty parable that I really, really like. It's not printed, so Joyce, I see you looking for it. It's not in the bulletin. You can't find it there. (laughs) Sorry, I didn't mean to call you out there, Joyce. But right before this, Jesus says, Who among you, if you have a hundred sheep and one goes missing, does not leave the ninety-nine and go in search of the one? And when you find it, you rejoice and you bring it back. Why? Because then the flock is all together. Whatever it is that Jesus was accomplishing, whatever it was that God was ultimately up to through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, it seemed to be about making reconciliation possible. Now, we all know within our lives that brokenness exists, and no matter how good our intentions are, we mess up, and, some, and we damage relationships between one another, and we damage our relationship with God. I mean, that's a no-brainer. That's why we're all here, because we all know that about ourselves. But Jesus was overcoming the power of sin. Jesus was overcoming the power of brokenness. Jesus was ultimately even overcoming the power of death. I don't know how it works, but that's the promise. And whatever it is that Jesus seems to be telling his followers right now, which includes us, I think it's this, be reconciled. Recognize when the brokenness happens. Recognize when pain happens, when turmoil happens. Do what you can to be reconciled. Now, a lot of times this passage gets thrown around as a way of, I get to tell you what you're doing wrong, and I don't think that's what this is about. I think it's about recognizing that Jesus made it possible for us to love one another and to be reconciled with one another. And ultimately, Jesus made it possible for us to be reconciled to God. Now, let's look back to Wordle for just a second here. I did it to myself, right? Yeah. When we use this passage as an excuse to be judgmental jerks, all we are doing is breaking the first commandment because the place 
of determining what is sin and what isn't. That belongs to God. That does not belong to us. And when we break a commandment, guess what? We just sinned. But thanks be to God that Jesus overcame our screw-ups. Amen? Amen.